Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We are diving into chapter 14 today, and we're going to take the first five verses. Chapter 14 is it's 20 verses long. We're going to take the first five, so it, it's, there's so much depth in it. I thought, okay, we'll break this up into a couple of chunks so that people uh, can try to retain it all, I hope. So we'll, we'll go through the first five verses today, and as I always love to do, I'd like to just hit a couple of slides of a, an overview of the apocalypse. So that's Revelation in the Greek is apocalypso, and it literally means the unveiling of. So it's the, it opens up the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So the book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Don't have a, we, if you are in Jesus, should not have a negative connotation with the word apocalypse. It literally just means the unveiling of, and it's, again, it's amazing how the world and our culture has such a negative connotation with that word. You know, you just hear about, oh, the apocalypse. Well, you think instantly of fire from heaven and meteors and famines and people running for their lives and things like that, but it's amazing how they get that, that insight just from the word and then reading this book because they read all this crazy stuff and they just think, well, the apocalypse must be something really, really bad. But for us, and, and frankly, for those in Jesus, it's the most hopeful thing that we have is that the Lord has to prepare the earth for his arrival to rule and to reign. And it's just like when he removed the children of Israel out of Egypt, he said, I had to take you out because I can't dwell with you there. He couldn't dwell with them in a place that was full of sin, idolatry, pagan worship, etc. He had to prepare a way to get them out to a place where he could dwell with them. Well, it's the same thing. He's got to prepare the earth for him to come back and dwell with us. So it's the same thing. But the, the Revelation, it's probably the most misunderstood book of the Bible. And the reason is because people aren't familiar with the Old Testament. They don't understand the role of Israel in the end times, in God's plan for the end times. The whole book is about Israel and redemption. It has nothing to do with the church. The church is gone, praise God, in chapter 4, verse 1. So we have this supernatural outline in the book. Chapter 1, the things that John saw, which was the glorified ruling Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are, which is the church, the church body, chapters 2 and 3. And then chapters 4 through 22 are the things which shall be hereafter or after the church age. So we get that supernatural outline in chapter 1. And the four things that are going to go back where they belong in this book. The church, we will be in our rightful home, which is heaven. That's where our inheritance is. Israel will be back in its rightful home, the land God promised to them in Genesis. That is where their inheritance is. And Jesus will be on his rightful throne, the throne of David, Right now, he's at the right hand of the Father, but he's not on his throne yet. His throne is the throne uh, throne of David, the political throne ruling the world from Jerusalem. And that's what you saw the angel Gabriel promise to Mary before he was even born. 
and all evil will be bound and ultimately cast into their rightful home, which is the lake of fire. So we have this heptatic structure. It's amazing how the whole book is, is centered around sevens. You can't make a, an exhaustive list of all the sevens in the book of Revelation. So we're continuing. We've gone through the first seven seals. The seventh seal opened up the seven trumpets. And we're right in between each one of these, the sixth and the seventh, there's a break in the book where God describes something else going on during that time. So the break between the seals was chapter 7. It was just one chapter. The break between the trumpets, 6 and 7, is a five-chapter interlude. It's 10 through 14. So we're starting the last chapter of that interlude today. And then the seventh trumpet will open up to seven bowls. So and then in the break between the sixth and the seventh there, it's literally just one verse from Jesus himself, his words. But even that structure still remains. So we've gone through chapter 10, which was the little book and the seven thunders. We went through chapter 11, the temple and the two witnesses. We went through chapter 12, which is an overview of the entire Bible, the woman, the man, child, and the dragon. We went through chapter 13 in two parts, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, and then the mark of the beast. So we studied that a lot last, last week. And that's really where you see the spirit of fear that's frankly gripping the church and the world right now is, is all centered around that, around chapter 13. The fear, that spirit of fear is just, it's rising more and more. It's almost like you can just feel it when you're out in the world right now. And fear is a wicked slave master. Fear makes you do things that you would never do if you were thinking clearly and logically. And the Lord says, I did not give you a spirit of fear. It also says he's not the author of confusion. And think about how much confusion is in the world right now. All of that is rooted in the enemy and in Satan himself, who in John, as Jesus says, was a liar from the beginning. And so do, whatever you do in this time right now, I'm just encouraging you. You've got to strengthen your prayer life and your faith in the word of God that you do not make any decision out of fear. If fear is driving your decision-making, it is driving you to the wrong decision. And so you've got to stay rooted in Jesus right now more than ever. Otherwise, you will do something very, very costly out of fear. So today we're opening up chapter 14, which is the lamb, the 144,000, and the doom who takes the mark. And we're going to take the opening five verses, which just covers the lamb and the 144,000. So this chapter contains the following. It's got the lamb, which is none other than Jesus Christ himself, the 144,000 who were sealed earlier in Revelation, if you remember all the way back in chapter 7. We had the first angel with the eternal gospel, the second angel with the doom of Babylon, the third angel with the fury on the beast worshipers, or also as the Revelation calls them, the earth dwellers the fourth angel declaring the righteous dead, and then there's three angels at the end all calling for the grape harvest. And what is that all about? So we'll get to that hopefully next week. But this chapter, what I want you to realize is despite all of that, this chapter is so full of hope. Because if you are in Jesus, you have nothing to worry about. Absolutely nothing. Do you trust him in all things? That's the main question. And you trust him to preserve you in all things. What we're going to see today is that there's 144,000 on the mount, and that's exactly how many were sealed earlier in Revelation. If your name, if his name is written on your forehead, you are sealed unto the day of redemption of our God. And you do not have to worry about anything. 
So Jesus, and we're going to look at a lot of verses about that, but this chapter, it's so full of hope and victory. I don't know how many of you are anxiously awaiting a righteous king to take his seat, but man, I've got to tell you, it, the time could not come quicker in my mind. And the world is just spinning out of control with unrighteous leaders. It's, it's amazing to me that Jesus hasn't brought us home yet, <laughs> but it's okay. As long as he tarries, we're going to keep teaching the word and, and dwelling here and occupying until he comes. So the chapter opens up, verse 1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the mount, on the mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So the lamb. Obviously, if you know your Old Testament and you know the Gospel of John, you know that Jesus is the lamb. So this is Jesus, none other than Jesus himself standing on Mount Zion. In John 1, 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. See, John knew that this was linked back to the Passover from Exodus. In the Passover, the Lord establishes the Passover Lamb, that feast of Moses, where they'd have to slaughter the lamb and then cover your household with the blood of the lamb. And it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile, Egyptian, a pagan worshiper. If you were under the blood of the lamb, you were, you were spared from the death angel. It passed over that house in Egypt. So it's just, a again, a confirmation that it doesn't matter what you're doing in your life. If you are in Jesus, if you are covered by the blood, you are spared the eternal separation from the Lord himself. So then that starts what we call the sanctification process, where you have to get to know your Savior. And that's when you start to submit to him, and you submit to him things that you didn't even know you needed to submit because you're finally covered by that blood, and the Lord is refining you, ever, ever refining you. You don't have to be a perfect, sinless person to be saved. Otherwise, none of us would be saved. What you have to do is submit to him and then let him work in your life. So the Lamb of God, John calls that the Lamb of God, calls Jesus the Lamb of God, and he calls that from the Passover. So why, why is Jesus the Lamb? So he alone has the authority, and it's from Revelation 5, verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, or living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So the seven spirits of God is directly from Isaiah 11, verse 2. You can go chase that down. But in the midst of the throne room, so if you remember from chapter 4, verse 1 is the rapture. We are in heaven as the 24 elders. We, we have the four living creatures surrounding the throne of God, which represent also the, the four faces of the cherubim. Each one had four faces. Those represent the four gospels. They laid out a cross in the, in the book of Numbers. You can chase all that down if you want to go back and listen to our message from chapters 4 and 5. But what you see here is in the midst of them, is the lamb as it had been slain. This is why Jesus can take back the earth. Because he was, he was the lamb, he was slain, and because he was resurrected, 
His sacrifice was sufficient for eternal life. So only his sacrifice could cause a resurrection. That was the only one. Okay, so because of that, he is the lamb that was slain. Now, does that mean he will forever bear the scars in heaven of what he did for us? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, We know from Isaiah that he was beaten so badly they didn't even recognize him as a man. He was beaten. He was so disfigured. He was unrecognizable as a human. That's how badly they beat him. And you don't get that when you kind of read through the Gospels and, and you picture this suntan carpenter you know, carrying a cross. He was beaten as a lamb that was slain. And if you remember from chapters 4 and 5, we, are look, we, the 24 elders, and all of us that are in heaven are looking for a man that is worthy to come forward and to take the scroll from the Father himself, to have the authority to unleash the seals to take back that title deed of the earth. And there's only one that's worthy. So in heaven, we're going to look in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And we talked a lot about that when we covered those chapters, why we look in three places. But out of the midst of us comes the only one that's worthy, the lamb as had been slain. And he comes forward to take the scroll. So there, there you have again the lamb. And Of course, all of this is rooted in the Passover, like we talked about, all the way back to Egypt. So what about Mount Zion? So here in verse 1 to open up chapter 14, the Lamb is there on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is one of the most important places to God on the earth. And it's it's kind of synonymous sometimes with Jerusalem in the Bible. If you don't know geographically, Mount Zion is basically right in the middle of Jerusalem. So the Mount of Olives is east of it. You have Mount Moriah. So Mount Zion is there, and it's all over the Bible. It's, it's the Lord declares that it is his holy hill in Psalms 2.6. He says in Psalms 2.6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So he obviously hasn't done that yet. Jesus will sit on that mount as the holy king when he rules in the millennium. It's his dwelling place in Psalms 76.2. David captured it from the Jebusites in 2 Samuel 5, 7. It is a cup of trembling, according to Zechariah 12, 1 and 2. Zion is referenced 152 times in 152 verses in the King James Bible. It's referenced, uh, Sion with an S is referenced nine times in nine verses. So you have 161 mentions of it in the Bible, in the Word of God. So it carries a lot of weight. The Lord has a lot to say about Zion. And, and actually, if you look through the Psalms, it's referenced all throughout the book of Psalms. And Psalms is such an interesting treasure chest of prophecy and application for us. Psalms 20 send help and deliverance from Zion. And actually, all of Psalms 20 may be in reference to the 144,000. Psalms 48, the kings of the earth are gathered in a woman in travel. That sounds familiar. Psalm 74, it's the purchased singers. Psalm 76, cutting off the kings of the earth. Psalms 102, the set time has come. Psalms 110 talks about Melchizedek, a rod to rule at the right hand. Psalms 132, the Lord has chosen Zion. Psalms 133, that Israel is united. Psalms 137, Babylon's to be destroyed. 
Psalms 146, trust not in princes, but instead in the Son of Man. Psalms 149, vengeance upon the nations. And it goes on and on and on. And all of that's in reference to Zion. So God has a purpose and a plan and a future for Mount Zion. And what I want to do is just let's read through Psalms 20 real quick, because I think this is pretty cool how it relates to the 144,000 that are with Jesus on this mount today as we unpack chapter 14. So 20 verse 1, the Lord hear thee in the day of trouble, the name of the God of Jacob defend thee. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation and in the name of our God. We will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. And certainly these 144,000 we're looking at today are anointed by God. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, let the king hear us when we call. So you can kind of see the the parallel of the 144,000 and how they are sealed, they are saved, they're on Mount Zion with Jesus himself, and that salvation is there. So how many were sealed back in Revelation 7? If you remember when we went back and studied that some months ago, it was 144,000 that were sealed. And here, standing on the mount with the Lord some years later, it's again 144,000. So Jesus didn't lose one. Despite the Antichrist trying to hunt them down, despite all of the terrors that are overtaking the world, despite bombings and wars and famines and pestilences and all these things going on, not one of them is lost. And I'm here to tell you today that if you are in Jesus, not one of them is lost in this world today before we go home also. There's not one. And Jesus promised that in John 17, 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And you see this again in Ezekiel 9. Why are they not lost? Well, they are sealed, and you too are sealed. Remember from Ephesians, we talked about the Holy Spirit being the earnest deposit from the Lord for the day of redemption. So if you're in Jesus in the church, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and it's the promise that you will be redeemed at the rapture. It's the promise that you, will, you too will go home. He purchased you, and it's the earnest deposit that he's going to come and claim you. It's just like putting down money on a house, an earnest deposit, that you will then come back and claim deed to it down the road. It's the exact same thing. So, and with them, 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And when you go back to Ezekiel 9, 4, that's exactly what happened. Remember, Jesus went through the midst and he put that cross on the foreheads of all those that are in him. Those that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. So, if you are in Jesus right now, I hope that you have a burden for the abominations going on in the world right now. Uh, babies are slaughtered in the, in the womb. 
Christians are murdered all over the world simply by having a Bible or a phone number of a Western citizen in their phone or the YouVersion app of the Bible on their phone or the Blue Letter Bible on their phone. They're running for their lives. It's an abomination to the Lord. And we need to be in prayer for the world right now. We need to be in prayer that really for God's people that are in the world and that those abominations cease because only the Lord can cut those off and bring back a redemptive, righteous king to rule over this planet. So when you think about the Lord's Prayer, what we generically call the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, that's literally praying for Jesus to return and set up the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. In other words, bring your kingdom from heaven down to the earth. It's a prayer. In Peter, we learn that you can hasten the return of the Lord. Well, how do you do that? You do that because Jesus said, the gospel must be preached to the ends of the world, and then the end shall come. So we've got to get the gospel out there. We have to get the word of God out there. We've got to get people saved and into the church body. Then Jesus will take us home. So just keep in mind that we have a role to play in this. It's not to idly kind of go about our business, but it's time for Christians to get engaged in the world. It's time for us to get engaged in the affairs of what's going on in the world. So if you think back to chapter 7, we had 12,000 sealed out of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes that were chosen were very important. And God had that order, if you remember, from Judah to Benjamin. It was 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes. Remember, there are 13 tribes, though, because two of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were adopted in Egypt by Jacob. And so from that point on, the Lord has a list of 13 to choose 12 from. So it's kind of like a baker's dozen. But if you remember, the 12,000 he sealed back in chapter 7 were Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh make up Joseph. So if you have Manasseh and Joseph, really Ephraim's there kind of hidden. We went through that last time. But the tribe that's not there is Dan, and he's not there because he's not sealed during the seven-year tribulation because it's by him that all idolatry entered the land. He was one of the tribes that, re that set up a golden calf again in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And so the Lord, if you're sensitive to it all throughout the Bible, the Lord has something against Dan. He's always got something against Dan. And you see that even carried here in chapter 14 or chapter 7, really, on who's sealed, that Dan is not sealed. He's left out of it. Now, we looked at something interesting last time, and just as a reminder, the names of these tribes are transliterated in our Bible. In other words, it's how they are pronounced. It's not what they mean. So Judah is translated, obviously, as in the Hebrew as it's announced or pronounced it's translated so that it's, we try to pronounce it the same, but it's not what the name means. It's not translated. So if you translate this list to what the name means, you get the 12 tribes that were sealed back in chapter 7. You get, praise the Lord. He has looked on my affliction and granted good fortune. Happy am I. My wrestling has made me forget my sorrow. God hears me, has joined me, purchased me, exalted me, adding to me the son of his right hand. And so you have this amazing promise from the Lord all the way encrypted back in chapter 7 
in the 12 tribes on why did God pick those 12 and how did he list them out in the Bible. If he would have listed them in any other order, that doesn't work. So he had to leave Dan out and he had to list them in that order, which is amazing. And you can play with names like that all through the Bible and what they mean in a list in genealogies and always come up with a special message from the Lord that's encrypted there. And what's incredible about that is it just shows you that this was a supernatural writing from God. This is not man on their own accord just making some list. This was the Lord intervening and giving man letter by letter his word. This is God's word. It's the blueprint that spoke the very universe into existence. So verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. So many waters. I don't know if, how many of you have ever gone to Colorado or somewhere where there's the rapids are really roaring through, but it has a unique sound to it. It's a, it's a sound that really you can hear from miles away almost. I mean, if you're inside of a cabin near it, you can hear it inside. And it's, a, it's the roar of many waters. Now, many waters, when they're rushing, have a sense of smoothing things out, right? If you've ever been in a, in a roaring rapid or a river, even just fly fishing in a river, the rocks are always smooth, right? There's not a lot of jagged edges. There's not a lot of, of rocks that you don't really want to step on like a lake that's just sitting still. And the same is true with the voice of God. It's the voice of many waters. And if you listen to it in the Bible by being in his word, it too will smooth out your life. It'll take kind of all those jagged edges off of you, the things that he wants to refine and continually, but that water takes time, right? If you were to throw something in that water on the first day, it's not like it's smoothed out from day one. It takes some time, and that's exactly what happens in your relationship with him. It takes time, and a lot of times in our lives today, we don't want things to take time. We want things right away. We want to be able to not walk in that sinful state anymore, not have that temptation anymore, or not fall into that sin constantly, you've got to submit it to him and let him take it off of you by his word, by the washing of his word to smooth all of that out. But many waters is used throughout the Bible. Uh, in Psalms 18, 16, we're drawn out of many waters. In Psalms 29, 3, the Lord is upon many waters. In Psalms 93, 4, the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. In Isaiah 17, the nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters. In Jeremiah 51, Babylon, who sits on many waters, will be destroyed. So when we get to Revelation 17 and 18, we're going to do a deep study on Babylon. And what is it? How is it? Where is it? What's its destiny? The Lord has a future for that city. His voice is of many waters in Ezekiel 43 and Revelation 1.15. So many waters is throughout the Bible. That's just a handful of them, but it's all over the Word of God. And it's used as a constant idiom of refining and taking down cities. So cities that think that they're idle and doing the right thing, but yet, but yet they are pagan and idolatrous, they will be taken out by the voice of many waters. And that's obviously the word of God. So verse three, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne 
and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. So what I want you to notice is, once again, there is a distinction between the four living creatures and the elders, all the way back to chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. There's that distinction between the elders and the living creatures. We are the elders. We are the 24 elders. And you need to, if you aren't satisfied with that, you need to go back and listen to chapter 4 and 5 and go and seek the word of God yourself and satisfy yourself with the fact that the church is a royal priesthood. And the 24 elders call themselves kings and priests. We are the only group other than Jesus and Melchizedek that has that privilege. So that is us. We are representative of the 24 elders. But suddenly, these 144,000 are in the throne room of the universe. Now, how they got there, the Bible doesn't say. So I don't know if Jesus raptured them home. I don't know if he came down to earth and got them and took them back. I don't know if he met them in the air like he's going to meet us. It's not, the Bible's not clear on it, so I'll try not to speculate on it. But what is clear from verse 3 is that they sing their new song before the living creatures who surround God's throne, the 24 elders who are us in heaven, and they're in the throne room of the universe all of a sudden. So how did they get there? Now, we saw in verse 1 that they're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. Now, not to get too, too uh, nerdy on mathematics, but if you think about, <laughs> if you think about, I won't do that, Austin, I promise. If you think about the dimensions that we live in, the three and a half dimensions we live in, so it's three spatial and a half dimension of time because you can move forward and look back, but you can't go backward, or you can't move backward and look forward. So it's only a half dimension. We have a half dimension of time where we can't, we can't move forward. We can only, or skip forward. We can't move backwards. So if you think about it, we know again from quantum physics that these other dimensions, there's at least 10 of them that modern science has discovered. And again, God has said in Genesis 1, 10 times, and God said, and God said, and God said. And so the old Hebrew rabbis would tell you because there are 10 times, he says that in Genesis, there were 10 dimensions originally. At the fall, the fracture, we were limited then to three and a half. It's why Jesus could come in and out of our reality in his resurrected body, right? He could go into a room without walking through the door. Satan had access to heaven, but yet he roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Remember in Job chapter 1, he tells the Lord, the Lord asked him, what have you been doing? What have you been up to? And he, and he says, well, I've been going to and fro the earth, and here's what I've found. So we know that angels and Jesus and his resurrected body, Satan, the fallen entities, they all have access to these other dimensions that we don't. Well, I'm personally convinced from the Bible that Jerusalem, if, if you were to somehow uncurl those dimensions because in quantum physics we can't access them because they're curled less than 10 to the negative 33rd centimeters so we can't get to them but if you were to uncurl them which will happen at some point jesus is going to uncurl them i think you would find in those 10 other dimensions that jerusalem is the center of all creation and that could be what god is talking about here that jesus was with them on mount zion but mount zion that's in those other dimensions not on planet Earth, if that makes sense. So I think that that's why that real estate is so hotly contested. 
That's why the throne room of the universe, I think, literally sits over it. It's why Satan wants it so desperately. It's why there's been a tear and a tension for it ever since creation. Uh, Satan has wanted that real estate. It's the most hotly contested piece of real estate on planet Earth is the Temple Mount. Try to carry a Bible and just go walk up the Temple Mount and see what happens. You may, I don't know what would happen. Uh, I don't do that. I'm advising you not to do that. But I think that if you were to do it, you'd be surprised at how, how much of an uproar it would cause. And Satan wants that property. It's the five I wills from Isaiah. I will set my throne in the sides of the north. I will set my throne on the most high. I will be like the most high. Those five I wills, Satan wants that property. He wants that land because I think he thinks if he can set his throne there, then he will be like the most high. So anyway, a little bit about that. I, somehow something happens from verse 1 to verse 3 because they're on Mount Zion with Jesus in verse 1, but yet they're in the throne room in verse 3. So it could be a, a plurality, a duel of really they're on both. They're in heaven, but it sits centered over that, that mountain. So they, they sing a new song, which I want you to notice is, no man could learn, or in the Greek, it's methano, that song. Methano means to learn by use or practice. So, you know, today we listen to a new New City worship song. I think all of us could agree in this room that we could learn that song. We could, we could learn the lyrics and go home and sing that song just fine. So what does the Lord mean by no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. Well, what it means is to learn by use or practice, and it's their testimony. So no man can learn or experience by practice their testimony. They're going to have one of the most unique testimonies on, in heaven, in that they were one of the sealed from 12 tribes of Israel that survived the tribulation that went out and declared the word of God all throughout the tribulation. Okay, there, that is a testimony that you and I are not going to be able to learn. So, and they're going to sing that song, that testimony in heaven. They have a new song to sing, a new testimony to declare. So it's, it's all about their testimony. And you too, if you are in Jesus, have a testimony that nobody else can know by practice. You've been saved out of something. Now you can declare it, we can hear it, and it will be something that we can rejoice in the Lord over, but I can't put my, myself into Mason or Ryan's shoes and experience that testimony that they have. That's something that I can't do. But what I can do is declare it, and we can all hear about it, right, and praise the Lord for it. So you have a new testimony. And what I want to encourage you to do is if you have never written down your testimony, write it out. Write out your testimony. Do I need that? Do I need that microphone? Okay, is that better? Is that better? Oh, that is better. So if what I'm encouraging you to do is to write down your testimony. And if you've never written it down, it's amazing what will happen if you sit down and really think about all the footsteps of the Holy Spirit in your life and what happens when you look back and you realize, wow, God saved me from that. He saved me from that. I f totally forgot about that. And remember in the New Testament, the Lord says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within. 
And part of that hope you have that lies within is because of your unique testimony. Because you have hope. You have hope that God's delivered me from this. He'll do it again. And so write it down and share it with people. So in verse 4, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. So the reference to virgins here, it could be literal. Jeremiah was forbidden to marry or have children. That's back in Jeremiah 16. Jesus warned against, in Matthew 24, against having children during the seven-year tribulation because they're going to be on the run. Israel's going to be on the run, and it will be difficult with children. It will be very, very hard to do that. And he references that in Matthew 24, 19. It also could be figurative. Any idolatry is spiritual fornication from Ezekiel 16. You see that throughout the entire Bible. The church, us, we're supposed to be the chaste virgin to Christ, but this isn't the church. And so that doesn't apply to us from 2 Corinthians 11.2. But whatever the case is, they are to be undefiled for the Lord. And you too, we know from seven times in the New Testament, we as the church are the temple of God. We too are to be undefiled for the Lord because the Holy Spirit indwells each of us. So if you are to be, if you are the indwelling temple of the holy living God right now as the church, just think about that. Think about, well, that means I should not participate in certain things. I shouldn't speak with guile, and we're going to cover that in a minute. I shouldn't, I should not worship things that are not of the Lord. I shouldn't put my hands to things that are not of God. You too are to live an undefiled life to be presented holy and blameless to the Lord on the day of redemption. So these follow Jesus wherever he goes. They which follow the lamb, whithersoever he, he goeth. You know, can the same be said about you right now? Can the same be said about you? If God calls you to do something radical, can that be said of you? Will you follow Jesus wherever he tells you to go? And it's a tough thing to think about. If he, he may call one of us to go over to the Sudan and live for the next three months in, in a hut in a village uh, preaching the gospel. I have no idea. Maybe it's to, for us to go build a homeless shelter in downtown Oklahoma City and feed the word of God into people that really are hopeless. Maybe it's that. I don't know where the Lord's going to call us next or you individually but when he calls you, will you follow? That's the question, and that's the challenge. Now, you will follow him if you know him. And again, the only way to get to know him is to be in the word of God so that you know when he calls, you know his voice. You know to follow him. He, I, you could have told me five years ago that he was going to call all of us to start a church in 2020, and I maybe would have thought, you weren't crazy, but you maybe you weren't that far off. But when he called, the voice was so clear. I mean, it was deafening clear. It was a voice of many waters that was undeniable. And so he's going to call you to do something in your life. And the question is, will you recognize his voice to step into that calling, whatever it may be? And you were redeemed from among men. 
because look at this, they were redeemed from among men. So you were redeemed. The question then is why? Obviously, it's so God's building a family, but you are saved. That's great. Now, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that salvation? God saved you on purpose for a purpose. And the, the greatest joy in your life is going to be to find out what that purpose is and how do you step into it. So the last verse, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So they're without fault. They have no guile. We are to have no guile. We as the church, as the body of Christ right now, meaning laxness, deceit, or treachery, you're not to have guile in your speech. You are to be long-suffering. You're to respond with hope. You are to respond with love and kindness to anyone, but especially a brother or sister in the Lord. And this is all over the Bible. Psalms 32, 2. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and who, in whose spirit there is no guile. Psalms 34, 13. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Psalms 55, 11. Wickedness is in the midst thereof. Deceit and guile depart not from her streets. In John 1, 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. I really hope Jesus can see you running to him with no guile. And it's, it's something that takes practice. You can't you have to learn to tame the tongue and, and read the book of James. It's all about the tongue. It's all about there is life and death in the power of the tongue. So speak life. Speak life to your brother and speak life to those that are looking for hope right now that are in this world with the threat of losing their job, the threat of their kids getting kicked out of school, the threat of not being able to go into a grocery store or a restaurant or whatever, to be a part of society, that threat is looming over everyone right now. And you have an opportunity to speak hope and love and endurance and strength to them and not guile. So do that. First Peter 2.1, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. First Peter 3.10, For he that will love his life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. So again, it, this, this concept is all over the Bible, that we are not to have guile in our mouth. Do not respond a railing accusation with a railing accusation. Just have hope and life in your tongue, always. So if you are in Jesus, you too can be without fault before the throne of God. And you are you to look back at your faults. So I want you to think about this for a minute in, in this concept. You know, they were without fault before the throne of God. We, all of us, had some fault in our life that God saved us from, right? You may have some fault in your life still that God is still working to save you out of or from. But if you are in Jesus, you too can be with the, without fault before the throne of God. So are you to look back at your faults? You know, were Lot and his wife supposed to look back when taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, think about that. God delivered them out of this unrighteous place and told them, do not look back. And there was a reason for that. 
because looking back, you're looking back at destruction. You're looking back at something that was ungodly. You're looking back at something that did not glorify him. And of course, Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt, as we know. So you're not supposed to look backward. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9, 62. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. Now, you could take that in a lot of ways. Looking back could be, hey, I'm looking back to try to get entangled in the world. It could be I'm, I'm sitting in what I looked back at of what God saved me out of. It could be there's lots of ways you could take that. But I think you find this concept all throughout the Bible that you were saved out of something and God wants you to look ahead and run to him and don't look back. Do not sit there and look back at what your past life was and dwell in it and sit in it because there's not, there's not redemption there. There was destruction there. God saved you out of it. And in Hebrews, he not only forgives, he forgets, and he casts your sin as far as the east is from the west. So if he's cast it off of you, why are you looking back at it anymore? And he uses those cardinal directions very specifically, the east is from the west. If you walked out of this building and you traveled east, you could go east forever, nonstop. You would just keep going east, going east. You couldn't go north forever. You'd get to a point where you'd go back down and you'd be going south again. Well, east you could go forever, west you could go forever. So how far is the east from the west? It's an immeasurable distance. It's something that you can't even fathom or calculate. It's so far from one another. And that's exactly what the Lord did with your sin and my sin and the sin of anyone that gets redeemed by him. He casts it away from you. Now, the enemy is going to try to pull you back into sin. The enemy is going to try to pull you back into, well, you can't be doing that for Jesus because remember who you used to be? Remember what you used to do in your old life, in your pre-Christ life, your BC life, right, before Christ? And what you have to do is say, you're a liar. You are a liar from the beginning. I've been saved. I've been redeemed. I've been rescued. God has cast that sin off of me. I have renewed my mind by getting into the word of God, and I am not a slave to that anymore. So you flee from me, you liar. And you take the battle to him with the word of God, just like Michael did. Remember Michael and battling Satan over the body of Moses in the book of Jude said, the Lord rebuke you. And so you let Jesus make that fight for you and come in and conquer that. But it starts with knowing how to war using the word of God. And then taking that to the throne of the universe and saying, Jesus, that liar is getting in my ear again, and he's not supposed to be because I'm sealed and redeemed by you. I am no longer that man or woman that I was before. I am something new in you, and I need you to go and cut off the liar, cut off the accuser. Remember from Revelation 12, he's an accuser of the brethren. And so all he's going to do is accuse you night and day. And if you are doing something for him and in him for the Lord, you're going to get accused night and day. And don't be surprised when the enemy accuses you of something that, frankly, is not who you are anymore. 
It's like in John 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you're born again, then the, then the person that's walking around didn't do those things, right? It's a different person. You are a new creation. And so don't let the enemy pull you back and paralyze you in a life that is not you anymore. In a life that it wasn't you that did those things. God has wiped it clean, clean slate. It's like a, a blank sheet of paper. You know, though Isaiah chapter, in Isaiah, we'll look at it in a second. Though your sins be as crimson, they will be white as wool, meaning they're covered. And so how do you get the accuser to leave you alone? How do you get out of this cycle of, I'm not worthy to walk into my calling. I'm not anointed enough to walk into my calling. I can't do that because of what I did in my past. Well, it starts by fully submitting to him and getting into the word of God. That's where it starts. In Isaiah 9, 6, one of my favorite titles of Jesus is the counselor. He is the counselor. So if you're battling something in your life, you have the creator of the universe himself as your counselor that you can take it to. Amen. You can write it on a sheet of paper and you can take it to the throne room of the universe and say, Lord, this is tormenting me and this is not who I am anymore. You have made me new and I'm coming to you asking, number one, that you take this off of me. This was a burden that I was not created to carry. And you say in Matthew that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And I'm here to take on your yoke that's custom tailored to me to walk freely in it and to go plow and harvest what you have laid out for me to do. And once you do that, you will walk in a freedom that you have never experienced before. You'll walk in a freedom where you're no longer, those thoughts don't come in your mind anymore of what you struggled with, what you battled before you got saved. But seeing being saved gives you the authority over that stuff. It doesn't just wipe you, wipe your mind clean. You've got to take authority over it and you take it by Jesus. So get in the word of God and build your faith. And what is faith? Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So Jesus is the substance of all we hope for and having faith in him is, is the evidence of something you're not currently seeing. You and I don't see heaven every day, but I have a hope and faith that we are going to go and rest there someday. That's going to be our forever home. And why is faith important? Hebrews eleven six. 6, for without faith, it is impossible to please him. So you can't be pleasing to God unless you have faith. So how do you go get it? It's Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So you've got to have faith to please God. And the only way to get it is to get in the word of God. So I'm encouraging you right now in the day of which we live, you have to get on a plan to be in the word of God daily. Acts 17, 11, search the scriptures daily, not once a month, not once a week, not once when it's a convenient, make it a routine. Building a relationship takes time and it takes energy and it takes effort. It takes day to day interaction. You don't, as an athlete, go and train and work out one time once a month and then think you're going to be the best on the field when you get out there, right? It's the same thing with a relationship with the Lord. You have to train daily. 
and by getting into the Word of God is how you do it. So if you're not saved, you're watching this online, or if you're here today, it's simple. It's Romans 10.9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. And you can make sure you have a one-way ticket out of a hopeless, dire world that is going to continue to get worse until Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. We know that because we have the book. We have the answers of what's going on. So you've got to get in it to know how to respond to people in this world right now that need hope. People need hope. Fear is gripping them and saying, it's getting worse, it's getting worse, it's getting worse. And that spirit of fear is taking them over where they don't want to be with their families anymore. It's keeping grandparents from seeing grandkids. It's keeping people out of church. It's keeping people out of congregating. It's keeping people out of fellowshipping together. And God said, like, at the beginning, all the way back to Genesis 3, it's not good that man be alone. We're created for community. We are created to, to sharpen one another and to be together and to cast burdens on one another, right? right? To lift each other up, to come alongside. How can you know how to pray for your brother or sister if you're not around them? And that's the problem. The church for 18 months has been shuttered in homes out of fear. And because people are telling them, you can't gather, don't get together, it's against the law. And I'm telling you, it's an attack on the church. It's an attack on God's people getting together. The enemy wants to silence the last voice on earth, which is the church. And if the church can't be a beacon for those that are lost, then all, all truly is lost until we go home. So if you need to get in Jesus, it's really simple. Be a part of this family. In Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And it's that simple. Your sins are immediately wiped clean, and you get to start that relationship in a new life, being born again to Jesus. So with that, I'll close us out in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the remnant in the world that is uniting together to stand in an unashamed fashion for you. Lord, I think that if you were to ask anyone that's in you 17 months ago, that would it be this bad? I think all of us would have said no. But Lord, here we are 17 months later and the Lord is literally groaning for redemption. The world is literally groaning for the love to come back into it, for the king to step back in. And Lord, as we await for you to step back in, you've told us in Luke to occupy until you come. And Lord, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to be about your business and we're going to occupy and we're going to preach the gospel and study the depth of your word and take up our sword, the spirit of truth, daily, the word of truth, the word of faith, all of that, Lord, we are going to take that out into the world of which we live. And we are going to declare your name unashamedly, unabashedly. We are going to stand on your word. And Lord, I just thank you so much that we get the esteemed privilege 
as one of the last places on earth right now that we can gather together and study your word without the threat of persecution. God, I thank you for that. It is not going unnoticed that that privilege is not widely given around the world. And Lord, you have a reason in your own counsel for that. But God, I just thank you that here we can gather freely and teach your word and declare it to the world through technology and through the videos. And God, I just pray that you would continue to bless all of those that find us online, God. Thank you. Continue to draw people together in your word and unite us as one voice, the voice that you have for us in the word of God. God, I pray a special blessing upon our children as they continue to battle so many various things at school. God, I pray that you would be with them and fight for them. God, I pray that you would meet them there in those schoolrooms, that, Father, they would just stand boldly for you. Do not let them be consumed by the devourer and the enemy, but, God, let them find strength in seeing that you are fighting for them and that you go before them. And God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And God, I am praying that a reverential fear return to the school, to the classrooms. We love you, Lord. And we just thank you so much for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.